in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It is 3 p.m., and up next is Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Rita Moreno, who is at Berkeley Rep through October 30th, a show called Rita Moreno, Life Without Makeup. Rita is the Oscar-winning actress from West Side Story, won a Grammy with Electric Company, a Tony with The Ritz, two Emmys, The Muppet Show, and The Rockford Files. And in my research, I discovered, this is probably the worst place to start, that you were once in an episode of Father Knows Best. <laughs> yes. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it horrible the way we laugh? <laughs> this enormously successful show. I played Shantini, an East Indian girl. They wouldn't dream of trying to actually get an actress who was really East Indian. So I played every nationality, as, as you saw in the play. Right. I played them all. Let's talk a little bit about your show Life Without Makeup. You live in Berkeley, and Tony Tacconi of Berkeley Rep approached you for a long time, and finally you agreed to it. What changed your mind? First of all, the thought was daunting to me of, because uh, I've been told, you know, you should do a book and all that for years, and I kept saying, Ugh, please, no. Just the thought of having to go over all that. It just didn't appeal to me. And I had been encouraged on a number of occasions by some really important people from the black community and the Hispanic community that uh, I should do it. But it was Tony who finally talked me into it. He, he called me when I was 77. I'm 79 now, about to be 80. And he said to me, you know, Rita, you're 78, 77 now. You better think about this. You don't have that much time. And I thought about it, and I said, he's right. He also said some important things, like there's a legacy, and you owe it to anybody who's uh, who has been uh, new in this country. They should know your story. That convinced me. I felt I had an obligation, truly. And then we uh, talked to each other, along with his assistant, Mia, and two uh, laptops and a couple of uh, tape machines for a year and a half, at least a year and a half. A lot. We had big, long sessions. And, and how long was it before he presented you with a, a raw outline? A draft? Yeah. I think I got the first draft about almost two years ago. And we took it to New York to uh, uh, read it out loud for Tom Fontana, who is the, was the writer-producer uh, of Oz, because Tony uh, adores Tom Fontana's work and respects his work. So he's really a good writer. And he gave us his opinions, and then we, he, uh, we went back to the drawing board, and we've had about ten drafts. Uh, that may sound like a lot. It's really not. Sometimes a new draft has uh, ten new words in it. So, you know, it's not just, it's, it's maybe just two pages or something. Uh, and it still needs some work. This is actually, I consider it to be a work in progress. I think it's a little too long still. You know, things like that. There are things that are not quite uh, finished. And, you know, really, you don't really know these things uh, unless you see it in front of an audience. And unless an, an audience starts to ask questions and people come back and say, well, whatever happened to blah, blah. And you say, gee, you know what? That went right by us. We didn't think of that. 
Uh, are you revising the play as you go along then, or uh, is it frozen for now? I think it's frozen for now. Uh, I'll be meeting with Tony in a couple of weeks, but uh, we may put in some very necessary fixes. Like, how did I get on the cover of Life magazine? I'm, at the moment, I'm improvising because we just suddenly say, and lo and behold, there I was on the cover of Life, and everybody who's come back says, says huh? It right. was wonderful, yeah. but how did this happen? How it, did it happen? I was uh, doing a pilot with Ray Bolger at the time, and it was during the time when what, what was called four-camera series were just starting to bloom. That means that you did a live show in front of a live audience, but you did it, uh, it was filmed with four cameras that had different angles. Right. And it was very new at the time Desilu started this. With I Love Lucy. Yeah, yeah, with I Love Lucy. And the fact they were producing this thing with Bolger. Life magazine was covering this event, all, not just Ray Bolger, but the actual event of what was happening in television in L.A. And there were a lot of contact pictures that went to the editor's office, and he said, who's this girl? She looks interesting. And they, they didn't even know my name. They said, oh, well, I don't, gee, we'll, we'll find out if you're interested. She's uh, Bulger's dance partner. And by the way, for whatever it's worth, he was a lousy dancer. <laughs> well, he was a hoofer. He wasn't a dancer, and believe me, there's a huge difference. I had the hardest time dancing with this man, and he kept saying it was my fault. <laughs> But he was a hoofer. And for those who don't remember Ray Bulger, you will when I tell you that he was the he was a scarecrow, right, in in the Wizard of Oz, the movie. That's how you got on the cover and you expected at that point for the world to open up. I don't expect anything. I was just so thrilled. I was I, I looked at that magazine every day, all day long. I had it with me. If I went on a bus I went <laughs> I would deliberately sort of open it and look at it. You know, just happened to be on the cover of this magazine. Well, getting back to Berkeley Rep. Now, you had worked with Berkeley Rep on um, on Tennessee Williams Glass Menagerie, yes. and and you did Masterclass where I saw you in that. Right? Did yeah. you see that? Yeah, I Isn't saw that. Isn't that a great production? It was a terrific production. Yeah. You were great. And Thank this, you. The singers who came out were oh, wonderful. Oh yeah. So uh, it's a uh, uh, quite a tour de force. How how do you put yourself in the mind of Maria Kaus for something? Yeah, like that? Interestingly enough, I understood her. Those things happen sometimes. And Moises Coffin, who was uh, uh, directing, who he's the fellow who's uh, responsible for the Matthew Shepard story, great director, would try to trap me with questions. Well, why is she doing this, do you suppose? And I say, I know exactly why she's doing this. I know exactly why she's saying this. And I can't tell you how I knew, but I think a part of my theatrical self, my dramatic theatrical self, understood what was behind a lot of her... Um, actions and her fears that one interestingly enough i never had any trouble to with respect to uh understanding the character whereas with the glass menagerie was more more difficult but maria i understood in fact i had something happen to me that's never happened to me before and very likely not to happen again i really felt and i I swear to you, I don't believe in this kind of stuff, but I swear I was visited on two occasions. And you know what it really was, because I don't believe in that stuff, is that I was so inside the zone of this woman. I was so inside her that I felt exactly like her, or I, I thought I did. And it only happened twice during the entire run. That can happen to you, and that's very exciting. It hasn't happened since. Two occasions when, in fact, we were previewing when I was at my most nervous and terrified. But it's as though she came to me. Now, I know she didn't. I, I think that stuff is uh, 
I, I just don't believe it. I don't, won't say nonsense because I know a lot of actors would resent my saying it's nonsense. But I became this lady. That's all I can say. Rita Moreno, in terms of the creation, you're trying to do many different things at once. You're trying to create a focus on a sense of identity as a Puerto Rican coming to America, poor movie star, actor, person of color, woman, all of them at once. How conscious in the creation was that, or was it just... If you're going to do my story, all of that plays into it. it it's just the, the most natural thing in the world. It is about identity, particularly, let's say in my case, because I don't know anyone else's story, I found out very quickly uh, as a youngster in New York when we came from Puerto Rico that it wasn't a good thing to be a Puerto Rican. It wasn't a good thing to be olive-skinned, that it wasn't good to have an accent. I found that out really, really early. I mean, I was called a spick when I was in kindergarten. And it started there because someone asked me yesterday at, uh, I was doing Univision in Spanish. You know, what's the first time you realized it was going to be tough? And I said, well, I was six. Because <laughs> she said, they called you that? I said, yeah. yeah. It was in Manhattan, right? In Manhattan, yeah. Perforce, then, you, 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 you're going to have the kind of story that tells an audience what it's like to be viewed in that way and how one person dealt with it. I tried very, very hard for too many years to be someone other than myself because I believed that was not a good thing. I didn't even have a mentor. I didn't have a, a model. Lupi Velez was way before me, so was Dolores Del Rio, so that was it. And I wouldn't have wanted to be Lupi Velez, even though I played those kind of roles later on in life. It's so much about that and how I came to terms with being who I am. That's really what this play is about. How this particular person came to terms with her identity and accepted it. Do you think that possibly when you were very young, getting those kinds of rejections steeled you to be able to be an actress? The hardest part is the constant rejections, and they're really, really cold rejections. Well, that's a wonderful way to put it. It's true. It, it has nothing to do with heart and humanity and this poor little kid. Absolutely. I think it's what really sent me into into therapy, and it's the best thing I ever did because uh, I was in a bad, bad way at the point I went to see a therapist, and I went for almost seven years. A lot of that time I wasn't in town because I was doing something somewhere else. But how do you steal yourself? Or how did it happen? I think part of it is DNA. My mom was like that. Think of this. My mother, after she divorced my father in Puerto Rico in a Catholic island, left me with him and my young brother and came to America on her own on a ship and without knowing a word of English, got herself a job in a uh, sweat uh, sweatshop. And did that for at least, uh, I would guess, four to five months until she made enough money to go back to Puerto Rico and get me. You know, you can't do all of this on, on the stage. And you can't tell all of that unhappily because she was astonishing. It's just that as a woman who was not educated, who was in fact ignorant about a lot of things and really never evolved... She was not the best kind of wo woman to have as a, as a mother. But on the other hand, as a role model of being able to deal with this kind of stuff. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, this woman, she uh, actually was a chef for a while. 
She wasn't a chef, but she was a good cook at home. She did all kinds of things. She wanted to have a, a tile in her backyard, and she couldn't afford it, of course. So she uh, went to a senior place, and uh, they taught her how to make tile, and she made tile in her, her little yard. She was very resourceful. Well, you you eventually, I guess, you steeled yourself. You actually did what was necessary to get an audition. And you got the audition, and you wound up in Hollywood. You tell the story in Life Without Makeup, Rita Moreno. You tell the story of what it was like to first go to the commissary. What was it like to have these tiny little roles at the very beginning in a movie? Would you just, like, somebody would usher you in, give you five lines, you do your thing and leave? How did that work? Well, it wasn't that tiny. Those were little feature roles because they essentially, MGM thought they were going to maybe i think they thought maybe we can have somebody who's uh hispanic and uh, we can make her a big star that's that's what they, they really had eventually that's what they want to do with me right then it, it, it just happened that, that they didn't know what the hell to do with me what what's that word for the horses when they had these things that blinders you, yeah blinders so they weren't tiny tiny they were featured roles but they were featured roles from Polynesian, from Indian girls, from uh, American Indian girls, from Cajun girls. Nothing having to do with speaking a perfectly good English, which I always did. You've said you created kind of this, you know, generic exotic to play. Mm -hmm. But in each of these, you hadn't had any acting lessons, no experience. That's right. They just threw you on the set and said... Say your lines? Well, yeah, they give you a, a script, and they assumed that um, you will um, memorize it, and uh, that you're going to have your costumes done by the costume people. They did have a um, an acting coach in MGM, which was sort of really hilarious and ridiculous. She was George Sidney's, the director's wife, Lillian Burns. And anyone who was on MGM knows that she was absolutely terrible. She was awful. And she would have a um, a big uh, window so she could see everybody going back and forth. And you would see constantly. She was white waving her thing. <laughs> she was waving her hands. And she would say, you know, I'll see you later. We'll call each other. And you're trying to do uh, something from the, the, the script. It was just crazy. It was absolutely crazy. What was it like seeing yourself on film for the first time? I wasn't pretty as I thought I was. I was just, I was not pretty. But, you know, I had trouble with that anyway. I never thought I was terribly pretty. And, you know, I look at the pictures now and I think, oh, my God, I was adorable. I was really cute. And later on when I was you know, 19, 20, 21, I was a hot chick. I was really a very sexy girl. Well, Brando was attracted to you. Mm -hmm. Should have maybe figured that one out. No, no, no. You know that that's like like an anorexic saying. I'm really still fat. I was. I didn't think myself as a pretty girl. Rena Moreno, you spent five turbulent years with Brando. During that period, did you ever talk acting at all? Uh, a few times, but very little. It's not something that he wanted. And I wanted to just please him. And if he didn't want me to, he didn't like my being an actress. He never saw me in anything. I think probably he probably finally did uh, West Side Story, but that's after. 
after we were finished with each other. So there were very few things we spoke about acting. I remember once, uh, two things. One time um, we did a uh, film together called The Night of the Following Day. Strange and film. It, well, it was kind of creepy. Okay. A noir. Well, actually, it was really based on the uh, to Peugeot kidnapping. Marlon, that's the last time Marlon looked beautiful. After that, he just blew up. I was supposed to be a cocaine addict, a stewardess. So we had a, a uh, scene where I was in, in a uh, bathtub, and I was really kind of out of it. And I was talking to him, and I couldn't work it out well. So at lunchtime, I had a whole bunch of wine, and I didn't drink much then at all. And then I did the scene. And as he said to me later, he says, well, you look like you're drunk. You don't look like you're a, a cocaine person. So he said, I said, well, what do I do? Because he, he said, we have to do it again. So I said, what do I do? He said, well, he said, what you have to do is, what did he, how did he put it? It was marvelous. He said, I want you to be very simple, very, very simple, and don't work it. Just simply be. It was very hard for me because I had no idea what you're supposed to think or feel. But actually, I did very well. He helped me out quite a bit. Do you think that was a technique he used a lot? It must have been. Yeah. 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 Well, he was remarkable. The one thing he told me once, he, when he was doing the, the Young Lions, where he played a Nazi, and I did ask him, how do you play a role where you're playing someone who's really a bad person? He said, I never think of that. He said, I just think of what I have to do to uh, rationalize what I'm doing. He said, it has to be real. And he said, I happen to be a Nazi. But I don't want to do all that other stuff, the garbage that a lot of people do. And he was marvelous in it. Rita Moreno, the story in uh, Life Without Makeup takes us through the electric company, but it doesn't take us in the last 20 years. Why did you, you and uh, Tony Tacconi decide to stop it at that point? I think it was important to reveal what was first i mean there's there's always a chance that i may do more who knows but uh what what, what really uh, loved about doing this play with with me and for me by tony tacconi is that he was fascinated by the hollywood days particularly that's the whole first act and those days you know where i'm a dinosaur these th the people like me don't exist anymore who's left uh, let's see maybe joel gray but no even then I, I'm older than he, so uh, there's very few people left who can actually tell you what happened at those times. During the studio system. Yeah, yeah. during the studio system. And I think, that, you know, I think that people are fascinated, actually. It's such a strange world. I mean, you know, someone like you, you must have known Mickey Rooney at MGM, right? I did. Yeah, well, he was in there since he was a little kid. That's right. It's astonishing. I, I visited one of his sets. He was doing something with... Uh, Humphrey Bogart, and I came to visit that set because I visited the sets all the time, and I would study how people were doing things, and it was just glorious, absolutely glorious to visit the sets. I got to know him a little bit, just a little bit, and he was, you know, oh, he was the same Mickey Rooney, that he was the same Mickey Rooney he's always been. That hasn't changed, which is amazing to me. Eventually, they let you go, which you discuss the horrors of that, and then waiting oh, for I was the phone call. I was heartbroken. Oh, God. I, I mean, thought I was going to be a big, my MGM 
career was going to be always there and that I was going to be a great, great star and I would sing and dance and and uh, I was absolutely shocked when in the third year it was all over. You did get a role after that in King and I and, and you talk about... That's much later, yeah. That's a, a few years later and you talk about how Franz Nguyen was clearly a better fit for the role. You got the role, but you were dubbed in that movie. They dubbed your singing, is that correct? No. They did not dub your singing because in on the CD I have, who was Leona Gordon then? Who? That was the name that it said, that you were dubbed by Leona Gordon on uh, We Kiss in the Shadows. No, that was me. Oh. No, no, it was me, and I didn't sing much, but I sang, it was my voice. Oh. I did my Lord and Master, so I don't know who Leona Gordon is. They might have done something way after the uh, the the fact but i i don't know anything about that i was dubbed for one song in um west side, uh, west side story. story because i couldn't reach those very low notes in a boy like that it was a very rangy song it still is and they brought in someone else to do that song during that period were you working at all with bernstein and sondheim or or was it just basically jerry robbins never saw them never saw them never met them only no. jerry robbins uh how did you get that the role of anita i auditioned just like everybody else uh when it came time to audition people for west side story i had to do three kinds of auditions i had to do the singing audition which went well we had the uh dialogue went very well and then there was this the dancing and that was uh my bete noire i was scared to death that i would never pass that audition because at that time i hadn't danced for oh my god about I don't know, 20 years? Something insane like that. I hadn't even lifted a leg. And when I found out that I was going to um, audition for dance, I ran to the studio and I danced for two months like a crazy woman. I took every kind of dance class you could ever imagine. Tap and this and that, everything. Still, Robbins put you through hell. Oh, well, but he always did that with everybody. That's not unusual. <laughs> the Jerome Robbins stories uh, still exist about how he tortured people. But then again, you know, he was a closeted gay man. He was filled with self-loathing, first of all. And uh, I think that's where the, the meanness came from. He really, really was very tough on people. Well, it was mean, mean, mean. And he was fired from West Side Story. Yes, but that was, a, in a way, a huge mistake because uh, he didn't get to do the mambo at the gym. And I don't think, I think it's the only number that really didn't work as well as the others because he wasn't there. And Robert Wise directed that. Yeah, mm -hmm. just by himself. And Robert was completely... Apologize for the um, CD not being able to play um, properly with the interview with Rita Moreno. Hopefully, we will be able to have that fixed and bring you the continuation of this interview at a later date.
invite you to get empowered and stop mental health stigma by joining the Peers Mental Health and Wellness Walk Saturday, October 1st at Cesar Chavez Park on the Berkeley Marina from 9 to 4. KPFA's own Davy D will MC. This is your chance to enjoy live music, dance, art, and kids' activities while learning about the importance of mental health. Donations are welcome and will benefit Alameda County's Social Inclusion Campaign. The walk kicks off National Mental Health Awareness Week. One in five Californians are living with some kind of mental health issue, and chances are someone you love may be affected. We invite you to walk for them on Saturday, October 1st at Berkeley Cesar Chavez Park. For more information, visit www.peersnet.org or call 510-832-7333.